This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraos. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Tyrene Calvisberg. I'm Laura Postarini. We're second year urban planning students at Columbia GSAP. We are speaking with Anania Roy in advance of her lecture at the school on February 25th, 2019. Anania Roy is a professor of urban planning, social welfare, and geography, and inaugural director of the Institute on Inequality and Democracy at UCLA Luskin. Her current research is concerned with metropolitan segregation and racial banishment in Los Angeles. Thank you for speaking with us today. I'm delighted to be here. So our first question. Historically, Western practices have been transferred to the Southern Hemisphere to solve planning issues in cities. But today, is the Global South the expert? Are we changing the notion of understanding poverty and development from a Western perspective, transformed into trusting in local strategies? What's your take on South-South collaborations? That's a wonderful question and a big one. So I might break it down a bit. And I think I'd like to start by having us think about the very specific historical conjuncture that we're at, where in the North Atlantic, both in the United States and in Western Europe, this feels like a moment of deep and persistent austerity. I often talk about this as structural adjustment returned home, where it is difficult for us to imagine a future for the welfare state It is difficult for us to imagine forms of social democracy that are robust. And yet, this is not the case elsewhere in the world. So one of the things I've been very interested in as a scholar in urban planning, as well as a scholar concerned with international development, has been the ways in which in many parts of the global south, there is what anthropologist James Ferguson has called a new politics of distribution where we are looking at liberal democracies with high levels of inequality that are in fact rolling out programs of redistribution, that are rolling out programs of universal health and education provision, that are rolling out programs committed to the right to the city. Now, This is not always a straightforward path in Brazil and what has happened in Brazil recently Mm -hmm. is an example of the sorts of backlash that can come to these programs of redistribution. But I'm very interested in this aspect of the Global South, particularly because these programs of distribution are not gifts by benevolent governments to their people. These are programs and a politics that has been demanded by majorities that are often poor, Mm -hmm. majorities that are subaltern, but that are able to position themselves in mass politics as citizens, that are able to demand of the state these forms of distribution and redistribution. So for me, it's very interesting that for the most part, the North Atlantic lacks this sort of politics and therefore lacks this relationship between government and citizen. And I mean citizen in the broad sense of the term. So one aspect of what I and many others have been calling thinking from the South is thinking about a politics of the possible around redistributive or radical democracy once we travel outside the North Atlantic. 
International development programs have evolved in the past decades. The paternalistic approach of multilateral agencies such as the World Bank or the IDB are now more focused on engaging with local communities for the generation of urban development projects. From your perspective, what are still some of the weaknesses these approaches have? So a while ago, um, for a book called Poverty Capital, I did an ethnography of what I call the apparatus of international development. And I focused very much on a set of ideas and practices. Um, my case study was microfinance that seeks to manage and regulate and govern poverty. And that ethnographic work involved a close study of the practices of the World Bank, of USAID, and other multilateral and bilateral development actors. And I was particularly interested in the ways in which that apparatus of international development was on the one hand these circuits of development capital and finance capital, and on the other hand, these circuits of expertise. So the apparatus of international development, whether we think about that work that I did in poverty capital, or we think about the current moment with the emphasis on the SDGs and sort of a kinder, gentler development, is the apparatus of international development. It was set up as a Cold War project. It has long histories of colonialism and neocolonialism. And it is an expression of Western power. Mm -hmm. That doesn't change regardless of how the rhetoric of development changes, right? Those same circuits of expertise, those circuits of finance capital and development capital structure the apparatus. I think what's interesting is how, in fact, today, though, we have not just that Bretton Woods project of development as the key actor, but we have several other development projects and endeavors. And one of them is sort of a very uh, dynamic South-South development axis. So this is not South-South collaboration. This is the role of China as the most significant development actor in mm. many parts of the world, yes, not just as a global investor, but as a development actor, be it in Southeast Asia, be it in Latin America, be it in Sub-Saharan Africa. I think we've also seen, particularly in the case of South America, all sorts of interesting southern-based development banks and entities. So I think we've got to take serious account of these multiple forms of international development. And I don't want to suggest that these forms of international development that are not centered in the IMF or World Bank or the World Trade Organization are somehow more liberatory. They are not. In the book that I did with Iwa Ong called Welding Cities, we were deeply wary of and critical of these inter-Asian models of circulation alongside which traveled all sorts of development projects and that often argued that Asian models of development were better than Western ones. So I think that the same critique that we have advanced to a Western apparatus of development needs to be extended to these other models as well. So since you mentioned that microfinance was one of your case studies, how do you see the financialization aspect either trickling down or actually passing by through these development efforts from these multiple actors? So who controls what? How can you actually track them and see it as a holistic system? As a planner, I'm asking you, of course. And not so <laughs> I have often argued that one of the things that urban planning scholars, especially urban planning students, need to pay much more attention to is financialization. 
And we've got to think about the financialization of what. When I was studying microfinance, the, fa- the what was debt. It was about the financialization of debt. It was turning debt, the debt of poor people, into a global asset class, turning debt into something that was productive and that could be bundled and securitized and traded. A lot of my interests now are in the financialization of land and in the financialization of housing. And these are, in fact, global interconnected circuits. So I think there's something very important about tracing who these actors are. So we're familiar with sort of the Wall Street private equity entities like Blackstone and the ways in which they show up in everywhere from Barcelona to Bangalore to Los Angeles, right? And the ways in which they're transforming the landscape of rental housing, for example. But I think that there are many other forms of financialization that we've got to think about, including infrastructure finance. And we are very used to thinking about the conditionalities that attach to a World Bank loan or to IMF policy um, frameworks. But there are also, in fact, all sorts of conditionalities that attach to um, infrastructure finance that comes from development banks that are based in the global south. And quite a bit of that is shaping urban planning agendas in different parts of the world. Let's move now to sanctuary cities. Since 2017, you have talked about how Trumpism is actually a rupture in international politics, an institutionalization of white nationalism. Can you please expand on this idea? Is it an exemplification of nationalism, which can be translated as a worldwide phenomenon? So I'm going to talk more about this in this evening's lecture, but since the election of Trump, uh, what has been on my mind as a scholar, as an urban planner, is very much what our intellectual and political responsibilities might be at a time such as this. And a time such as this for me is both a new moment and yet a moment that is continuous with long-standing forms of white supremacy in the United States. So on the one hand, I see Trumpism as a re-emergence and maturation of white supremacy in the United States. And on the other hand, I see it as a rupture because it comes on the heels of what was called a moment of post-racialism, where there was perhaps some degree of liberal comfort with integration, inclusion, diversity, Mm -hmm. equity, all of those wonderful catchwords we had developed to describe what was still a state of white supremacy, but where, in fact, uh, the post-Civil War agenda of integration felt a bit more real. Trumpism shook us all, and I became very interested in what the role might be of urban planning on the front lines of struggles against Trumpism. And I'll talk more about that today, inspired by my students at UCLA, who've really called loudly for abolitionist planning. But I've also been very interested in how we might analyze Trumpism. And I argue in my work that Trumpism as a form of right-wing nationalism is a worldwide phenomenon. So the Modi government in India previews Trumpism. It is a right-wing nationalist government committed to a brutal Islamophobia. I think in many parts of Europe, we have seen a return of right-wing politics from Sweden to Italy. And um, the election of Bolsonaro, I think, was, like the election of Trump, a deep shock 
that reminded us of how fragile some of these liberal victories might have been. But I'm also hopeful that precisely because these feel like deep shocks, they bring us into direct confrontation with white supremacy, with Islamophobia, with xenophobia. And particularly for us as urban planners, forces us to confront the ethical question of what urban planners must do at a moment such as this. So in that note, can you actually talk about a little bit more about the concept that you have been discussing about the fishbowl city and what's our role and how do you see the planners um, handling this ecosystem? So the fishbowl city is a turn of phrase that I borrowed from a wonderful song called We the People by the Hip Hop Collective, Mm -hmm. a tribe called Quest. I think planners need to listen to a lot more hip hop. Um, (laughs) So that song was hailed as one of the country's top anti-Trump songs. Uh, it, it sort of was released during the Trump campaign and has continued in its popularity. And it's very much about what I would call racial banishment. It's about these border-making practices, about practices of expulsion. Except that it's not just about this moment. It's about how communities, particularly working-class communities of color, racialized targeted communities have always been told to go away, right? That there's no place in the city for them. But there's this wonderful phrase um, in the song about how the hood is seen as a fishbowl, right? Mm -hmm. And that those living in the hood, on the one hand, are being expelled, but on the other hand, their culture is being appropriated and they are constantly being watched. And that to me was very instructive because in thinking and writing about certain battles and struggles in LA, particularly the anti-displacement struggles playing out in Boyle Heights, which is a working class uh, Latino neighborhood near downtown Los Angeles, I was very struck by the ways in which those movements have been fierce in their determination not to be a fishbowl for well-meaning scholars, nonprofit organizations, and everyone else showing up to do tours, if you will, right, of these working class neighborhoods and their struggles. So many of the movements that inspire me in Los Angeles are rooted in neighborhoods that are facing displacement and dispossession, but that have a real commitment to what I would call self-determination. And that self-determination is not just stopping displacement and dispossession. It is also controlling the terms on which knowledge about them is produced. Thinking very much about who controls the means of production of knowledge. Thinking very much about who represents, who tells these stories, whose narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that we need to be acutely aware of in urban planning because urban planning as a discipline and as a profession for so long has worked with well-intentioned liberalism and has sought to represent marginalized communities or advocate on their behalf or tell their story without thinking about the terms on which that form of representation and advocacy happens and without thinking about the forms of accountability that must accompany those forms of advocacy and representation. So that, for me, is why Fishbowl City matters. In that note, how does the framework of abolitionist planning can be applied in colonies or colonized territories? 
For example, in Puerto Rico, as in many cases, planning was so much part of its colonial infrastructure. How can we unravel that work done from the planning discipline? What implications does this have on the training of planners, universities, and even in the community engagement process that we design? So the Institute on Inequality and Democracy at UCLA, which I have the great privilege um, to direct, our key research methodology is what we call decolonizing the university. And I very much extend that to urban planning as well. What might it mean to decolonize urban planning as a discipline and profession? And for me, that means a few different things. One, it means that in the case of the United States, we have to confront and start from the long histories of racial capitalism, and particularly settler colonialism and chattel slavery. But of course, recognizing that those followed on the heels of genocide. So when genocide, settler colonialism, and chattel slavery are our starting points, what then is urban planning? These are very difficult questions, and this is not, these are not questions that the discipline and profession asks of itself. Once we start from that point, it leads us, I think, to a set of conversations around justice that are quite different from the ones we're currently having. It leads us to such things as reparations. It leads us to what, following W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black radical tradition, we're calling abolition democracy and abolitionist planning, which is not just about ending the prison industrial complex. That is a part of it, but it is about challenging state-instituted violence against targeted communities and recognizing that urban planning is a key part of that violence. Mm, of so I'm going to start with this big debate that we've been having around abolitionist planning and the wonderful challenge laid down by Dishon Dozier, who's a graduate student here in Cooney, in response to the UCLA students. The UCLA students had called for abolitionist planning after Trump's election, and Dishon Dozier wrote this fantastic piece that I'll reference in the talk, saying there's no room for planners in the movement for abolition, because she argues that planners are Pardon. the instruments of violence, right, of colonial violence. So I think that we've got to think through very clearly planning's institutional location and what kinds of planning we see as having the potential to decolonize. Now, for me, I like to hold in my own current work, in simultaneous view, what I would call a post-colonial approach to the United States. So I talk about my new research in LA as a post-colonial approach to global Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And that means thinking not only about these long histories of settler colonialism, et cetera, but thinking about racial capitalism on a global scale and the work being done in black geographies, particularly in the black radical tradition, to think about abolition democracy. But again, abolition democracy was not simply ever about the United States, as in the work of Du Bois, Cedric Robinson and others. It was always a global imagination. So this means being able to see America itself as a post-colony. Mm -hmm. I always argue a post-colony to which post-colonialism has not <laughs> arrived. I think we're in a deeply neo-colonial moment, right? And in the moment of the thickening and uh, rooting of American imperialism. So I think that it really behooves us then to think about what decolonial logics might look like. And in urban planning, you know, it starts with thinking about the role of our discipline and profession in this colonial violence. So when I talk about reparations, I mean reparations at the scale of urban planning as a profession. 
Now, these are not words that will be said at any of the urban planning, gatekeeping no, associations or publications. I want to know what reparations urban planning is going to make for the tremendous colonial harm that we have inflicted. I want to know how our instruments of planning are deeply colonial or imperial, right? or rooted in the extermination of indigenous people in this country. What then do we do with those instruments? So those, I think the moment of Trumpism, ironically, is an opportunity for us to have these conversations, though I remain a little less optimistic about the capacity of the discipline and profession to take up these questions. Can you share with us an example of an initiative that has had positive impacts on the fight against spatial and racial segregation? Are we moving forward even if this moment is so difficult and within this political climax in the United States? So one of the things I've loved about moving to L.A. is that I've become a student of that city. And L.A. for me is a great southern city. Uh, it is like the cities I study in the global south. It has long histories of displacement and dispossession, but equally long histories of fierce organizing. And for me, what is hopeful about this moment in our cities and in our communities is I think we're seeing the reemergence of forms of collective action and organizing that even a decade ago I would have thought was not possible. So just last month, we held a major conference in Los Angeles called Housing Justice in Unequal Cities. And this was the launch of a National Science Foundation-funded research network that will be housed at the Institute and for which I serve as principal investigator. And we very clearly decided not to focus on the housing crisis, but to focus on housing justice as a field of inquiry and to think about a terrain of scholarship both university-based scholarship and movement-based scholarship that can make housing justice real. And part of the inspiration for this comes, for example, from the amazing tenant unions and tenant federations that we are seeing that are redefining the meaning of property and tenancy and land and rent. Mm -hmm. It comes from a new municipalism, which we're seeing in many parts of the world, including Barcelona and Berlin, around the role of the municipal government in relation to financialization. It comes from places like South Africa, where the question of reparations is not rhetorical, where there is a very real effort to think about what reparations and land redistribution might look like in the process of post-apartheid change. So for me, As this is a moment of tremendous socioeconomic inequality in our cities, Manhattan being exhibit <laughs> number one, number one. <laughs> um, so it is a moment of a proliferation of housing justice struggles and movements that are not just fighting to end evictions or make sure that there is shelter for the houseless, those are important, but that are producing entirely, entirely new conceptual understandings of urban life, of property, of personhood, of collectivism. And this, for me, is the story that I hope urban planners will enlist themselves in. I hope it's a story urban planners will write. I hope you will take that as the first step of planners doing reparation. I hope so very much, too. Thank you so much for talking Thank you, to Nana. us. It was a pleasure. Thank you both. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.